You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. I first met my next guest when she was two years old. I was at a lunch party hosted by her parents in the northern suburbs of Johannesburg. It was a lovely Sunday afternoon. It was very hot and quite honestly, I was getting a bit bored with adult company. So she and her slightly older brother cajoled me into going off to the swimming pool and throwing a ball around and all that sort of thing. So I, I did so and they jumped in the swimming pool. But I, of course, was fully dressed. I didn't have a costume with me, so I couldn't join them. But... I suddenly thought, well, let's have some fun here. And I pretended to be sleepwalking, and I sleptwalked, if that's the right phrase, into the swimming pool fully clothed, and they thought this was a fantastic idea, and it was great fun. And since then, I have been known as the sleepwalker by both Emma Sadler and her brother, Nick, and she's with me now. She's the CEO, and she's progressed since then, whereas I may have not have done. She is the CEO and founder of the Digital Law Company in Johannesburg, and is probably one of the world's most senior social media lawyers uh, is that a fair is, is that a fair reflection emma oh well i think you may have escalated me from the continent to the world i do do quite a lot of work in europe these days um but i really am focused on the continent at the moment but i think social media is sufficiently global for i suppose an expert in social media in south africa is an expert in the world i think social media has come to the fore even more to the fore in our lives in the last few days i mean every day every one of us or three and a half billion of us at least uses social media for whatever means whether it be corporate use or whether it be personal use or just contacting family whatever it is but the point is that in the last 48 72 hours two things have happened one a facebook employee an ex-facebook employee has blown a whistle and that has has come to the attention of the US government and the other thing is that the Facebook suite of products came to a halt for six hours which is unprecedented sometimes they go down but six hours is quite a long time let's start with the whistleblower what do you make of this woman well, I thought it was fascinating. So uh, your listeners will know that we've had Francis Hogan um, appearing this week in front of a Senate committee. Um, she was on Sunday night in the U.S., uh, interviewed on 60 Minutes. The Wall Street Journal released the files, the Facebook files, as they're calling them, last week. And it really has, I think, been the worst week to be Facebook in its history. And basically what's happened is that this Francis Hogan has come out and explained that Facebook knew just how harmful its platforms, and we're dealing with Facebook and Instagram primarily here, are for its users, particularly teenage girls. They have the tools available to fix that harm, but they're choosing not to because they prioritize their profits over the well-being of their users. So basically, sleepwalker, if I can call you that. Of course you may. Um, what happened is that she's come out and said Facebook's algorithm prioritizes content which is polarizing, divisive, violent, hateful, because it's worked out that if it can make its users angry, the chances are that that user will spend a longer time on its platform. Now, the longer time that user spends on the Facebook platform, the more money Facebook's going to make, right? We've got to remember we're not dealing with a charity here. We're dealing with a company that's trying to make money. I was going to say Wonga because I'm speaking to the sleepwalker. But uh, before you money, go on, right? let's contextualize this and make it very clear that Facebook and all its associated companies is worth, on, in terms of market capitalization on stock exchanges, it's worth one trillion US dollars, which is astonishing. I think we're looking at 
over 1.2 trillion US dollars, which is just absurd. I mean, we know that there are about 3 billion monthly active users. The company is out there to make money, right? They're not there to do good in the world. But what they've been promising us for a long time is that it's trying its best to do good, to take down hate speech, to take down disinformation and misinformation. But actually, what these Facebook files say is that it's not trying that hard because it's worked out that the more divisive the content that they're hosting on their platforms is, the more uh, engagement that content gets and therefore the more money they make. So the bottom line is that Facebook chooses profits over the safety and public good of its users and of society. And that is a pretty earth shattering um, statement to be making um, from somebody who's actually been in the inside. You know, she's been working for, for Facebook for the last two years. She was a product manager. She's worked in the civic integrity kind of division. Um, and the more time she spent inside the company, the more alarmed she became. And but, Yeah, but and, Emma, the other yeah. thing is that the, I saw an interview with the content manager of Facebook on CNN, I think it was, or maybe BBC, whatever, and she said, well, this woman didn't work in the division that I, I run, and I have run for nine years now. I've been at the company for nine years, and therefore she just stole some documents, and those documents have been taken out of context. What would you say to that? Well, I would say they're scrambling. I would say that they realize that this is probably the biggest, I mean, other than sort of election rigging allegations, um, which, which, you know, <laughs> you know, the political situation, the post-truth world that we live in is complicated, but there is no doubt that what Facebook has become is an accelerant uh, to those big issues. And I think that it doesn't take a rocket scientist to have a look at any teenage girl and realize that the longer they're spending on platforms like Instagram, the unhappier they are. And, and one of the most interesting allegations that's come out of this is that, uh, you know, Facebook's own research. So these are not things that they're reading in the media or published by academics. What Facebook's own research is showing is that as these teenage girls start consuming uh, the content that they're interested in. So, so, so one of the senators, what he did, and it was absolutely fascinating, was they created a fake account on Instagram. Yes, the 13 year old girl. 13 year old girl. Exactly. That was an amazing interest. story. Sorry, carry on. In I get excited about these yeah. uh, exposes. No, no, but it, yeah. It's fascinating because basically they created this completely fake account and they said that she was a 13-year-old girl and they the, the way the, the content that she followed was sort of eating disorder kind of content. And what they showed is that every single time she logged on to her Instagram account, she being this fictional character, yeah. she was being bombarded with more eating disorder type content because they had worked out that that was kind of what she was interested in, even though it's completely harmful content, which shouldn't be on the platform at all. So what happens is that these kids end up in a feedback cycle where the longer they're spending on the platform, the more depressed they are. The more depressed they are, the more time they spend on these platforms. And we are creating some very, very damaged and, and, and sad, particularly teenage girls, is the, is the content that they're showing. I mean, the allegations that are being revealed. And I work on the ground, and I can tell you that that is exactly what I'm seeing. When I say I work on the ground, I speak at a school just about every day. I've spoken to over half a million kids in person yeah. um, about issues around social media. And the kind of content that's landing up in my inbox 
would horrify any any person, not just parents. Um, and and I think that what we're realizing is that Facebook knew just how harmful these these platforms are. They have the the, the mechanism to fix it, and they're choosing not to because they're prioritizing profits over its users. How can this be regulated, Emma? Do you, do you suppose, or, or can it not be because of its size and just simply because of the uh, instant access that people can uh, instant uh, instantaneous access that people are used to? You just can't stop it. I mean, if I buy something, if I buy a book from a certain bookseller in the United States or the United Kingdom, immediately the next day or the next minute, books keep popping up in front of me. So it, it's very, very difficult to, to stop these algorithms, isn't it? Well, I think the algorithms are okay where it comes to advertising to show that I was looking at, I don't know, some baby clothes on a platform and then the baby clothes come up on, um, on, my, um, on my algorithm as an advert. That I think people are okay with. What's not okay is I read, I spent maybe an extra minute than uh, the algorithm said I should reading some absolute rubbish anti-vaxxer content. And then I'm being you know, this more anti-vaxxer kind of content is being shoved down my throat. It's that social engineering aspect, which I think is not acceptable. Now, there are two big things that can be done by the new administration in the States, which would, I think, have a huge impact in terms of regulation. The first is that I do think Facebook has become too big. You know, I, I don't know if you saw Edward Snowden tweet that Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram all going down at the same time is the example of why breaking up a certain monopoly into at least three pieces is not a bad idea. And we'll we've been hearing rumors of this. Mm. Yeah, we've been hearing rumors of this, you know, that they are getting big. So so I think that uh, they are getting big. What a stupid thing to say. But but that they, what we're dealing with is a behemoth, right? And and I think that when everybody, I, I think a lot of Facebook, a lot of Internet users thought the whole Internet had gone down because those three platforms weren't working when we're dealing with one company. So so I think they've got too big and there's been whispers that they're going to be forced to unbundle to sell off WhatsApp, to sell off Instagram. So I think that, you know, is the big threat over their head in terms of try and do better. And there's been attempts. We've seen vague attempts to try and do better. We've seen Donald Trump being suspended from the platform. We've yes. seen, you know, just a little bit, a bit more transparency in terms of what's of what WhatsApp's doing with our content. I don't know if you remember earlier this year, it didn't affect the EU as much as it did the rest of the world. Um, but, uh, you know, a disclaimer popping up on WhatsApp saying, unless you agree to our new terms, you're going to have to stop using WhatsApp. And there was nothing in there that they haven't been doing already. It was just becoming a little bit more transparent about what they're doing with their information. So for me, I thought, OK, well, it means that this threat of being forced to unbundle means that they are trying to get their house in order a little bit more. But I think that what this shows is that they could have been doing better and they've been choosing not to because they've been prioritizing profits. So I do think that they've been given an opportunity to do better without the legislative intervention and they haven't. And I think that's really what's been coming out of the Senate hearings this week. This must be meat but and drink to you, Emma. Sorry, just to go on. This must be yeah. meat and drink to you, companies like the digital law company, because more and more people will be uh, alerted to the fact that their children or themselves are being... Well, maybe abused isn't too strong a word, abused by social media companies, notably the Facebook network. And um, they're going to say, OK, we've got to stop this. I'm going to give you an example of my 13-year-old daughter, not a fictitious 13-year-old daughter, but a real 13-year-old daughter. And this is what has happened to her because of you. Bang, off we go. Litigation. It must be, I mean, it's a horrible thing to say, but it must be good for you. 
<laughs> you know, I, I have to tell you, I wish it wasn't. Um, and, yes. and, you know, I do, I do, um, do a lot of educational work, but, but I don't charge victims of cyberbullying when they come to me. I don't charge victims of revenge pornography when they come to me because for me, this is, you know, often it's image based violence that I'm dealing with, but for me, it's often harm inflicted on children. And I don't believe that children should have to pay to get legal advice to help them out of sticky situations. But, you know, it's certainly keeping me interested. It's certainly keeping me busy. But I want to go back to what we can do in terms of legislation. So obviously, there's this big threat of the unbundling. But for me, much more interesting, Lindsay slash Sleepwalker, is the threats of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Now, this is particularly relevant for non-EU Facebook users. So EU Facebook users fall under Facebook Ireland. That is where you're headquartered. You've got an issue with Facebook, you can take it up in Ireland. And to be honest, they're much better at sort of playing by the rules in Europe because there have been orders against Facebook which have been enforced. The rest of the world has the problem that if you try and take legal action against Facebook, Facebook will say to you, oh, we don't have jurisdiction in your country. So if you want to sue us, sue us in America. And oh, because America is obviously was where these companies are headquartered, where the servers are. But also in America, we're protected by Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Now, a lot of your listeners will know about this. But for those of you who don't, It's basically a billboard immunity. So what what Section 230 says is if we provide a website, if we provide the platform, we're not responsible for the content on that platform, which is very different to what the the rest of the world says. You know, if I have a website in South Africa or in England or just about any EU EU country in Australia and Canada – Yes. If I'm hosting illegal content, so I provide a platform, somebody puts graphic, violent child pornography or child sexual abuse images is a term that we generally prefer on that platform. I'm not responsible for it if I'm in America because I have this billboard immunity. I'm just providing the billboard. I'm not responsible for the content on the billboard. Whereas every other country in the world, as soon as you become aware that you are hosting illegal content that you can take steps to take down, you become responsible for it. Surely that must change now, given what's happened in the last two days, Emma. Surely the Biden administration will will change it. It, it, what it means, Lindsay, is that if we go to Facebook and we say, Facebook, look, here's a kid who is receiving this horrific content or somebody's created a fake account in her name, please take it down. If you can actually find anybody to deal with your request, um, then they really do like to say they're not responsible for the content they're hosting. Now, we've seen steps towards them saying they're going to be stricter about the kind of disinformation that they're hosting. They're going to be stricter about the kind of terrorist content that they're going to be hosting. And in many instances, if you send a takedown request because some you see harmful content on social media, that there'll be some person in a back room who gets given about 15 seconds to look at it and decide whether or not to, le- to delete it and does delete it. But if they don't, then you've really got very little option other than to try and take legal action against them in America, which is generally prohibitively expensive and practically impossible, you know, especially with lockdown. I mean, I tried to have a case against Facebook last year, just trying to get couriers where there are no airplanes flying. I mean, it was just very, very tricky. Yes. But what they can do at the moment is just say we're not responsible. 
So I think that that's got to be done away with, that Facebook has to be in a position. Well, they can't obviously be responsible for every single thing they host before it gets published or the second it gets published. But when they become aware that they are hosting harmful content, there has to be a duty on Facebook to take down that content, that this magic wand of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, this billboard immunity, I'm just providing the billboard, I don't have any editorial control over what's on that billboard, is absolute nonsense. And that has to be um, that has to be done away with as a matter of urgency. Zuckerberg is a pariah at the moment, isn't he? Did you see the Congress uh, people saying um, he's, he should be... He should be here now, uh, but instead he's gone, he's gone sailing. Zuckerberg, um, the buck stops with him, I think, and that, I think that's what the whistleblower said. Do you agree with her? <laughs> I, I absolutely do. I have to tell you, if I was Mark Zuckerberg, I'd be feeling pretty thirsty, I think. I mean, it, it's been a tough week to be Facebook. Um, I think these um, the the whistleblower allegations, you know, there have been rumors. And I think, you know, what what you were saying about Facebook being abusive to children, I haven't ever heard anyone say it in exactly that way. But I don't think it's extremist or alarmist in the circumstances. I think mm. that is what's happening. And I think that, you know, we saw, for example, The Social Dilemma, which was the Netflix documentary, which really took a, a lot of people it took the world really by storm because people suddenly for the first time were realizing like what are these platforms doing to us how do these platforms make money it's a very basic thing but when you ask people um how does facebook make money especially more the uneducated users often they'll say well you know network costs or data or airtime costs and you think no that's not how they're making money there there's there's not been very much transparency about the business model and I think what the social dilemma did was that it started it started really sort of opening the, the can of worms of what is going on. There's also, if anybody is a parent listening to this, there's an excellent documentary, which is free to watch on YouTube. It's called Childhood 2.0. Yeah. And it raises a lot of these issues um, about what's going on with these social media companies. But I think that what's so interesting about this whistleblower is that she's been living – in the inside of this organization and recently. And the files that she's dropped go back to 2012. You know, it's not like these are new issues that Facebook is suddenly grappling with. It's known very well for a long time, if these documents are to be believed, and I believe they are, just how harmful their platforms are, and they've done damn all about it. And I think that is really, really shocking behavior from one of the world's biggest corporates. I think so too. And also it just calls into a question whether the social media sphere is getting too big. And we'll come to that in a moment. But I mean, it, it made a president. I mean, let's face it, Donald Trump is not mm -hmm. presidential material. But because of social media, because of Twitter in particular, he became the president of the United States of America, and therefore the most powerful man in the world. Now he is champing at the bit. He's gnashing his teeth every day, Emma. And it says, you'll be glad to know, uh, just reading from the Guardian newspaper from an article yesterday, it says, you'll be glad to know that Trump is on a mission to write all that. Uh, his, his banning from Twitter and make his social media life great again. On Friday, the former president begged a federal judge in Florida to grant an injunction that would make the losers and haters at Twitter, as he calls them, reinstate his at real Donald Trump account while he fights the company's permanent ban. This guy used to be the most powerful man in the world, it goes on to say. Now he's pathetically groveling for a chance to tweet. It would be hilarious if it wasn't a sobering reminder of the immense power big tech has. Too big, do you think? Yeah, I do. You know, I think that... 
<laughs> there are a few things I want to say about that. The first is, and it, just to take it r- way back to the, like, the most rudimentary level, and it's where I think Trump's going to find himself in big trouble here trying to get his account back, is that where you get something for free, they don't owe you anything. <laughs> you know, And I do appreciate that there's basic and there's nuances and there's exceptions to this rule. But as a rule, and this is what I say to the kids when I'm teaching and to the corporates when I'm teaching, where you get something for free, they don't owe you anything. If I leave here and I go to the shops and I buy um, a new laptop for 5,000 US dollars, right? Like make it a fancy one. And I get home and I plug it in and there's no red light and there's nobody home. What can I do? I can take it back, right? I can have a tantrum. I can say I want my money back. I want a laptop that works. But if somebody had just given me that laptop for free and I get home and I don't like it, it doesn't work. There's nothing I can do, right? And I know that this is a basic way of looking at it. But it's a very good way of looking at it, in particularly in countries where government are not holding the mantle in the big fight against big tech. You know, if, if you've got an issue in South Africa with what uh, one of these companies is doing with your content, there's no one with a gun to your head saying you have to use the platform. If you don't like it, don't use it. And, I, I, you know, I know that's very rudimentary, a very old school way of thinking, because thankfully that is starting to change. But... If Trump wasn't playing by Facebook's rules, Facebook gives you a service. The quid pro quo of that is that you agree to whichever terms apply to you on any particular day. And I say any particular day because these pl- companies change their terms every single day, right? And one of the terms is that you've reread the terms every time you've opened the app. So one of the, so, so, so that is a contract that gets formed. When you start your Twitter account or your Facebook account like Trump did, he agreed to play by their rules. He didn't play by their rules. They took away the, his access they don't owe him anything. So it's going to be very interesting litigation to watch. But, you know, I I would say if I was uh, Trump, I'd be uh, trying to befriend people at Facebook to be nice to him to give his account back rather than to take the approach he's taking, which is to alienate them further. He's, he's never been nice <laughs> to anyone except himself, Emma, and we know that. There's only one person in <laughs> Donald Trump's world, and that is Donald J. Trump. Did you feel slightly relieved when uh, social media networks were down for six hours uh, recently? I was. I, I actually I read, a, I read a thing called a book, a big papery thing. I read the book and I went to sleep and had the best night's sleep I've had for ages. What about you? I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree with you more. I had exactly the same experience, except mine wasn't a paper book. It was a Kindle book. And, you know, I speak about addiction and I speak about digital detoxes and I speak about carving out media free locations in the home and not sleeping with your phone next to your bed. But I have to tell you, I'm one of the biggest addicts I know. And just to catch myself how many times I reached for my phone, opened my WhatsApp, opened my Instagram, opened my Facebook without even thinking. Yes. It was really a stark reminder for me. And that was a only six hours and you know where we are in the time zones it was you know half of those hours were when we should be sleeping so so it shouldn't have had the very stark effect on me that it did have um and i think it was a reminder that if one company is so powerful that if it goes down you know most users of the internet thought the whole internet was down um then it's it's got too big. And I did think that it was quite funny, Facebook having to resort to using Twitter to get updates to the world. Um, and I think a lot of people sort of making allegations that it was a bit too coincidental that it all went down at the same time uh, that these whistleblowing allegations happened. You know, the idea is that if, if you are that big and you uh, run your servers on your servers and everything is all Facebook owned and then there's an error – 
and everything goes down, you know, it, it is a reminder of just how big they've got. And, and whether that's a good thing for society and for the world, I'm not sure. I find it hilarious that a company that does one thing, and that is big tech, and then really, really big tech, goes down for six hours because of something that they explained as a configuration problem. Or some bloke had just uh, gone off shift and pressed the wrong button or something. That was the inference. Uh, but it went down for six hours. I, f I find it actually rather gratifying that they are fragile in that regard. Um, Emma, just tell us a little bit more before we leave this on the sort of work you're doing. You're doing fantastic work, voluntary work, speaking to children, uh, numbering at the moment half a million. But is, is a lot of your work corporate as well? Yeah, so I do, uh, you know, so, so I think we worked out a long time ago that with social media mess-ups, I was going to use another term, but with social media <laughs> mess-ups, prevention really is better than cure. You know, so, so a lot of the work that I do is educational work. I speak at schools, as I've said, um, you know, the biggest schools with is issues with schools with the kids at cyberbullying and sexting. Um, and, and, you know, the technology really enables more extreme versions of both of those things. You know, I'm dealing with a lot of deep fakes at the moment, that kind of thing. So I do a lot of educational work with the kids. Um, you know, I suppose it's a bit like the modern day equivalent of the drug talk, um, where you go in and you tell them what the legal consequences are, what the disciplinary consequences are, and how you can really mess up your reputation at the press of the button. And, you know, some of them probably don't listen at all. And hopefully some of them we've managed to change their minds about various things that they're up to on social media. And then I do a lot of work with corporates. So I've just given a talk this morning to a big corporate where we're, we're dealing with how do we deal with a reputational crisis. Um, you know, if you've got an employee who is filmed doing something they shouldn't have and then people are calling for boycotts of the company, uh, it's that kind of crisis management that I do a lot of work in. Um, and then, you know, the sort of cease and desist letters if somebody is defaming uh, a company um, or an individual um, then, then I do a lot of work on that. So, so my main passion projects, I suppose, are defamation and image-based violence. Um, and a lot of sort of trying to make sure that the law is keeping up with what society is dealing with. So I do try and do a bit of work with law reform as well, uh, giving input on new pieces of legislation and, and coming in as an expert witness in, in big cases and, uh, in the high court and in the, in the labor courts, people being fired because of what they're up to. So, it's interesting. I've written a couple of books. Um, <laughs> the first one is called Don't Film Yourself Having Sex because, well, you know, <laughs> it would be great if you could, but it is risky. Quite difficult um, as well second, from my point of view. <laughs> the second was Selfies, Sex and Smartphones, a Teenager's Online Survival Guide, um, which I suppose is a bit like a driver's license before you're allowed to drive a car. Uh, it's the same kind of theme before you give your child a smartphone and let them loose on the world of social media, the kinds of things they need to know and need to be um, conscious of. Emma, thanks so much for your insight. Fascinating stuff. Emma Sadler is the founder and CEO of the Digital Law Company, and she's based in Johannesburg. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organization, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.